Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at successionstories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Sarah Dusick is the co-founder of Under Canvas and general partner of Enigma Ventures. Founded in 2009, Under Canvas redefined experiential hospitality in the U.S., growing from their first location in Yellowstone, Montana, to several luxury glamping accommodations near America's most popular national parks. Sarah shared her incredible journey scaling and growing a business from nothing to selling it for over $100 million to a private equity firm. What I appreciated most about her story was the honest description of what it felt like during her time of transition. She grieved the loss of being a CEO of this business and how she saw her identity after she left. She took the time she needed to grieve and eventually found a new purpose. Now, Sarah invests in women-led businesses in Southern Africa, empowering entrepreneurs to reach their full potential Enjoy this episode about finding purpose after selling the business with Sarah Dusick. Sarah Dusick, it is so wonderful to speak with you today. We're talking to each other from across the world, and you sit in South Africa and I sit in the United States. You and I had a chance to talk ahead of time. I'm super excited to learn about your entrepreneurial journey and what you're doing today to support women in venture capital and their investments, and you're investing in them as entrepreneurs. So welcome to Succession Stories. Thank you so much. Why don't we start with you and your origin story as an entrepreneur? Tell me a little bit about you, your husband, Jacob, and how you founded your company under Canvas. Yeah. Well, I think of myself as an accidental entrepreneur in that it wasn't something that I was planning on. And in fact, sort of going back even one step further, I used to think that the idea of making money was somehow evil. So I I came full circle, um, (laughs) crossed over to the dark side and realized actually that building companies can be a hugely transformational thing. And that there's so much good that can come from the act of building through entrepreneurship. And I have come to learn that Entrepreneurs really are the builders of our, of our society. The, the entrepreneurs who build businesses are the people who move us into the future and move us forward and shape our cultures and shape our world by the products and services they create. So a long way from thinking like that, I came out of working for a nonprofit organization. I'd worked overseas for many, many years. 
came to really the end of myself and was really sort of tired and came with this idea of thinking about hmm, maybe business is this uh, this vehicle that could be used for good. And we started thinking about how could we get involved with a business that could, could help grow it and maybe do some good through it, which made us think, oh, maybe we should start a business because we know nothing about being in business. So we started with a very, very small idea because I had been working in Africa in my early 20s and my husband is from Montana originally. When I arrived in Montana to be with him, I realized how much synergy there was between Montana, big wide open spaces and wild places in Africa. Obviously, slightly different wildlife in both places. (laughs) Slightly. but still wild places. And so we came, we had this kind of crazy idea of, could we recreate the safari experience in America? And could we allow, you know, guests to come and stay in amazing, beautiful tents in wild places? And so we started with this crazy idea of, of, could we get people to come out and stay on his family's farm and ranch in Montana and stay in a beautiful tent? And that was really the genesis of our idea, which was a good and bad idea all at the same time. <laughs> well, I understand why it's a good idea because it's innovative at the time. What year was this? This was 2009. So this was really like glamping didn't exist. It wasn't a term that people were familiar with. The idea of sleeping and paying, you know, hundreds of dollars to sleep in a tent wasn't something that was on people's radar. It was just new and novel and and we realized quickly that there was there was there was definite appetite for staying in an unusual accommodation there just wasn't a lot of appetite for people staying out on the prairie in the middle of east in the middle of montana because um, <laughs> yeah, you had to get there that not only did you have to yeah. so your service would put the tent up and this is like a heavy canvas tent this is not your typical american yeah. family tent that you yeah, have uh, you like know a, the a tented hotel for all intents and purposes we just were really small we right. had four units to begin with and in a location that nobody really was interested in staying in <laughs> Yeah. So was location the key then? You realized that getting people there, even if they were friends and family, they said, this is great, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We quickly realized that we weren't in the right spot. We had a great idea and there was, there was definitely something to the idea, but we weren't in a spot that was easily accessible or that people necessarily wanted to travel to get to. So we pivoted relatively early on and started thinking about where were the people traveling to when we sort of were, you know, looking at Montana, because that's our home state. And that was when we realized, ah, we have two beautiful, amazing national parks in our state and we get they get a lot of visitors. Maybe we should think about trialing this idea near a national park. Within a couple of years, we had pivoted to creating our first location in Yellowstone National Park and created the under canvas that is known and loved today. It's a, a known and loved brand for sure. In those early years, if we describe it from toddler to adolescent, mm-hmm. there was a lot of growth. I mean, just to give us a sense today, how many employees are in the company or how many locations you have, just to give us a sense of size. Yeah. So at the end of this year, I think there will be 11 locations. We are throughout the West and a couple of sites now on the East Coast as well. 
all near or close to national park destinations. And the company has at the height of the summer, we'll probably have close to eight, 900 employees. So, wow. Um, yeah. It's a pretty big company. And so we'll, we'll flash forward for the audience so that they know, and they'll certainly hear this in the introduction. I'm not uh, giving it away here, but the company did have an exit. So we're talking about these early years and the growth years, because these are hard years. These are hard to really figure out. You, you figured out one big thing, which was location. And now, you know, as you described yourself, you hadn't worked in hospitality. Did your husband ever work in hospitality? No, neither of us did. We were complete newbies. We, we were learning everything the hard way and quickly realized, oh, it would be really great to get some people in who really know what they're doing because we really don't. Um, we just had this vision. We had this vision of creating these safari style resorts outside national parks across the country and believing that we we had something that could scale, that could be replicated in a large way and, and had a really unique experience that we wanted to offer and give to people that wasn't there in the market. So that's what we were excited about, but really just did not know how to operate our own business. And so had to figure out how to efficiently operate our business so we could put those building blocks in place so we could scale. And so hiring someone from the outside of your experience, was that the key to unlocking that, was, that potential? That was absolutely the key. Yes, we brought on our COO right after our first year of operating Yellowstone, a year that almost killed my husband and I. And we often look back on that year and go, well, if we could survive that, we can, we can do anything. <laughs> I mean, we had two little children. I had a, a 10-month-old and a three-year-old, and we literally worked 24 seven. I mean, maybe oh I slept gosh. four or five hours a night for four months straight. I think maybe took three days off in that entire four month period. So it was, it was extremely brutal. We were woefully understaffed. Our product was woefully inferior to what it is today. And it was very scrappy and very chaotic. And we just knew though that the bones of what we had, there was something there. And then began the process of thinking about, okay, how do we create some order? How do we create some systems and processes? And how do we build something that's replicable? And, and who do we need to bring in to help us make this thing work? At what revenue level did you have that sense that this was going to work? Was it at 5 million? Was it at a million? 350,000. <laughs> oh, wow. You guys said it. this is something because it was it after that summer at Yellowstone when you were kind of doing it yourselves and you said, hey, our product's decent. It's almost like that, you know, if you hear the term MVP, minimum viable. Yeah, yeah. And then you said, okay, we think we have something here at 350,000 in revenue. So in those early days, and then you brought on someone and then you started to build process. And then how quickly did this business scale? When did you get to your first million, your first five million? We got to our first million that next year. We got to our first five million the year after that. And, you know, incrementally um, scaled dramatically year after year. So after. the foundation was really, getting the right people. Yeah, we process. had a very exponential growth. But, but at the same time, we took a lot of risks to make that growth happen. So, so that was the, we just kept doubling down on, our minimum viable product and turning it into a, a something that really had huge traction and looking at how do we how do we put our systems and processes how do we be more efficient how do we scale this up 
without you know drastically increasing our overhead because we were self-funding so we were bootstrapping our business and plowing every cent that we were making in the business back into the business to to generate growth so it was a super risky strategy but there was no one who was taking me seriously at the time so we didn't really have any other strategy it wasn't like oh, i definitely could have gone to the bank and would got millions of dollars of loans we got a teeny tiny amounts of loans after one local bank i finally managed to convince them they could use tents as collateral because nobody was interested in even believing i had any collateral so <laughs> it was really really tough it was really really how a did you convince them that tents were the collateral were these pretty unique tents were they custom to you and they were custom to us they were designed by us um i guess we had an amazing bank manager who to this day i mean really he enabled our business to get lift off because if he hadn't given us some even small loans and help us get some SBA loans, we we would not have not have grown and we would not have probably made it. So he just believed in us. He believed in what we were trying to do. He could understand the product. He just had a vision that for some reason he said yes. And that wow. was that was, was this huge a community work. bank in Montana. Yeah, it was a local small bank, local Montana bank with great people who we built great relationships with and they backed us and they helped build one of the fastest growing Montana startups that has ever existed. Wow, that's a great commercial for relationships with community banks. We do hear Absolutely. about that, that when you need access to capital as a small business, that many times it is your community bank that can have that faith, like you said. And wow, what an interesting, <laughs> that's a great yeah. story. What were the other things that enabled the business to scale? We talked about people process. You had some access to capital in the early years. You were self-funding. Yeah. What about marketing strategy? Yeah, I mean, that's. I talk about this all the time because I now invest in, in small businesses. And one of the things that we are constantly looking for is how do you find your highly scalable growth channel that is relatively low cost? So you're always looking for, can I find a route to market that isn't going to cost me the earth? And part of our strategy was going, when I said sort of we had to go where the people were, we've discovered that there was an overabundance of, of people traveling to national parks and an undersupply of accommodation to stay in. So our highly scrollable growth channel was moving into markets where there just wasn't enough accommodation and levering what was already in that space, like TripAdvisor, Expedia, Booking.com, to enable us to acquire customers. So we levered what existed and plugged holes where no one existed. So it was like trying to discover where's the hole that I can fit in and how can I use what's already out there to push people towards me without, because I, I had virtually no money. So we were trying to sort of find ways to market ourselves. And this is really the days before Facebook, right? Facebook was sort of 2006, 2005. So Facebook marketing wasn't really a thing. It just, none of this, Facebook wasn't monetized. So it wasn't just a case of you throw stuff up on Facebook and boom, you're an overnight success. So it was it was really just trying to find ways to be in front of our target audience. And that's what I tell people all the time is like, how can you go where your audience already is? How can you show up in front of them in the, the most efficient, most cost-effective way um, to get your products or services seen? 
That's great advice. I was advertising on Facebook in the early years, so I can empathize with that because you had to have an edu dot edu or an email in those early days. <laughs> I used to say, you know, fish where the fish are, and fish where the exactly. online fish are. In the case of trying exactly. to find e-commerce clients, but in the travel space, yeah, some of these channels had already existed, and you needed to put yourself in front of them in a cost-effective way. So it seems like you you did find a way to do that. Was it ultimately through paid advertising, or was a more organic content? No, totally organic, um, and we realized that the um, it, what, what is now known as an influencer and bloggers, there were really more bloggers then than, than influencers, but, um, people wanted to come and stay for us. So, so we really harnessed the power of other people's voices with trying to get our word out and did everything we possibly could for free to us, um, to try and, um, get in front of as many people as we possibly could. So we looked for every free strategy there possibly was. So we doubled down on PR. We hosted as many people for free as we could in exchange for them writing about us and taking photos of us and posting things on the on web and um, referral websites. I mean, you name it, we did it um, back in those days, but just trying to show up as much as we possibly could. That is smart. That's really smart. And also you probably were measuring how cost effective that was. And I'm, I'm guessing it was then very scalable because you had inventory. <laughs> so they could come yeah. on their own and then stay with you that had low marginal costs, but then high benefit for the reach and audience that, that they would get for their travel sites. I'm and sure. The great thing was that if we did a good job, I mean, this is often true for most companies, right? If you do a great job and your guest or your customer has a great experience with you and they love, they fall in love with you they're going to be your best advocate for your product or service because they're going to tell their friends and family about you. Um, and we, we definitely had some curb appeal um, and that definitely helped. Um, and people did love our experience, even our very early minimal viable product experience people, people loved and raved about. So that was, that was huge for us with getting really great organic traffic. That's fantastic. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stonyhill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. For the tents, they were unique. And as you think about the product, you talked about you're offering a service, but it's a product too, because of the way maybe you've positioned it or packaged it. But these tents themselves, did people say, hey, can I buy a tent? Did you think about selling the tents? Yeah, they, we, we absolutely did. People would say that to us all the time. And it was one of the hard decisions we made in the early years of the business, actually, because especially when we were super strapped for cash, um, we realized, you know, how can we put more money into this business. And one obvious way we could have done that was sell tents to people who wanted them. And we would get calls all the time, say, if, you know, even for large numbers of tents. And we made the decision that because they were unique to us, my husband was our designer, is our designer, um, that, that they were the thing that made us unique. So it's like they were part of our special secret sauce, if you like, that made Under Canvas iconic because we realized if you stayed in one location, you might stay in another location and, and we would have a look and feel that, that was Under Canvas. And that really um, was 
a key moment in our growth story, really, because we said no to what was really potentially great, a great revenue stream for us, believing that it would create more value for the company if we kept something iconic and we kept something that was sort of proprietary to us and would differentiate us from looking like any other competitor. Because we knew if we sold them, other people would use them to set themselves up a competition to us. And we wanted to stay looking unique and unusual. Um, and so that was that was a hard decision, actually, because we were constantly robbing Peter to pay Paul and, you know, trying to juggle the, the bills. Um, but it was a super important decision for us to, to not not sell our one major key asset. Yeah, major decision. When did you and Jacob decide to take on outside capital? Was this a concerted decision as you were starting to think about maybe a strategy to sell the company? Or was it more about operations and how to scale the business? Well, it wasn't really a decision about selling the company because it never even crossed my mind that I would sell the company. <laughs> um, but um, what it was, was a strategic decision because we realized we were market leaders and we had a really big piece of you know, the, the market that existed at that time. And we've just felt this huge sense of urgency to keep growing and realizing that if we didn't keep growing, someone else was going to take the space that we wanted to own. And so we, from, from day one, like when we made that decision, we're going to scale this business, we've got a minimum viable product. We knew we just had to go as fast as we humanly possibly could. And lots of people said we were crazy, right? Because we hadn't perfected the product. We really didn't have our systems and processes ordered. There was just a lot of chaos in the business. Um, but And people thought, you're trying to do too much, too fast. You're trying to grow too fast. You know, you're going to grow yourself out of business. I heard that a lot. Um, but I just knew that we had to capture market share. And um, amazingly, a guest stayed with us. And we were five years in. And she was a venture capitalist in New York. And she said to me, you know, you really should raise money for this business because there's a guy out in New York right now trying to raise money for a business identical to yours. And he hadn't started yet. I mean, he was at idea stage and we were five years in. And I was very profitable doing a large amount of revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And I just realized, gosh, if he takes on venture capital money and he has $20 million for his startup, he's going to wipe me out. I'm going to like be left in the dust. So we felt like at that moment in time, I didn't have a choice. I was like, I could either go on the pace that we were on, which was aggressive, but it was reliant on the cash that we had, or we could decide to take on outside capital and go faster, go further, do more um, and build faster than we could without outside help. So that really catalyzed, you know, so competition in that regard was really good for us because it made us made make a decision on what are we going to do now? What do we want? What are we going to do? How are we going to play? Um, and we really strongly felt like, you know, this market is ours. Um, we don't want to lose pole position. So I got to put some fuel in the tank. Did you keep the other guy out of the market? I did not keep him out of the market. He entered the market. And the great thing about him coming into the market, he raised a lot of money. Um, he spent a lot of money on marketing. And he really helped build um, the glamping industry into what it is today because they spent a whole lot more money on marketing this whole idea of glamping than I ever did. Um, 
So he became a very valuable asset to me in many ways. So that saying rising tide lifts all boats was true. Absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Interesting. And this woman that said to you, hey, you should take a look at this, then did you hire an investment banker? How did you raise the capital? Let's, let's just talk about that. How did you find the right fit? How did you find the PE firm that was the right fit for this investment? Yeah, well, at the time, I didn't know investment bankers existed. I didn't know really how venture capital worked. Um, I was very green. I just, it was a space that I hadn't operated in at all. So I just didn't know how it existed. So she was helpful in that she helped me understand what venture capitalists were looking for. And then I started cold calling um, and trying to get meetings. And of course, cold calling venture capitalists when you're not connected, mm -mm, not going to happen. Um, and I had a lot of calls. Uh, it was a lot of tears because I just got a lot of no's because people didn't understand us. And people kept saying to me, you're not tech. And I mean, we, we invest, venture capitalists invest in tech. And I was like, hmm, I, well, I'm sure I know that venture capitalists are investing in this space because I know some, my colleague over there is getting, getting meetings and getting, and I just, I wasn't using the right language, wasn't positioning us in quite the right way. Um, and so eventually um, found someone who said to me, you know what, I love this and I think I can help you. And I was like, hmm. And so the idea of paying a broker was like, that, that didn't sit very well initially either. But then I, when I realized I'm not, I'm not having any traction, <laughs> I'm not getting anywhere um, with finding the right kind of people and getting in front of the right people that um, I, I need to use somebody to help me um, put me in the right space for who is going to be the right kind of investor for us. And that was actually really helpful um, for us and really, really powerful um, with, with aligning us with the right kind of people. Oh, that's good. And then you had the opportunity to have meaningful conversations. Yes. When it, when it got to the point where you were deciding on taking a deal, did you have multiple deals to choose from? I did, yes. Um, and when we finally, when we finally did a deal, um, we found um, a, a provider that did some debt and equity into our business. And that was a super great fit for us because um, we wanted to, we had a cash flowing business. We didn't need to go the, you know, traditional venture model route just because we were already we were not super early stage anymore we had revenue we, we were profitable we had EBITDA um, and we could service debt and also very clear metrics around if we build this and we spend this we kind of know what this does because we've built them before so um, we took on a on an investment partner who did a debt and equity deal with us which was great because um I love debt providers having equity because then they've got skin in the game and they're not entirely motivated to just get their debt back. They're also motivated to try and make their equity valuable at the same time. So we had a great, that was our first sort of real, um, it was a very large deal for us at the time. I think it was $14 million that we took on in that first serious um, institutional investment sort of post friends and family and, and, um, early stage debt from banks and angels. That's a pretty um, big number for bootstrapping all those years. It was it was a very big number when, when we first took that, that amount of money on. So yeah, it was it was huge. It was a huge deal. 
Did they get a board seat? They did. Was that your first board or did you already have a board at that was, point? No, that was our first first board seat. So then we had my husband, myself, and one investor on our board. Okay. <laughs> okay. So at this point in revenue, how big was the company? Um, we were probably doing close to 10, 10 okay. million. Not okay. quite there, but just not just short of 10. You know, sometimes I hear stories where there's different offers on the table. And the highest number, we assume many times people are going to take the highest mm -hmm. number. A lot of times I don't hear that to be true. Is that true in your case? It was definitely true in our case, yes. So we had varying value. I mean, valuation is, is just a piece of the puzzle, right? And really what's significant, what is significant is what you give up today. But more significantly is what do I think I'm going to get out in the future? And so for this particular deal for us was, was extraordinary because we only gave a little bit of equity away um, and took on a huge amount of debt, which was, which was risky for us. I had to secure it. I had to guarantee it. So my whole, my personal world was totally and utterly on the line. And, you know, and the, and the truth was nobody was finding $14 million out of them. And I was not worth $14 million. So really, I mean, I was going bankrupt if we were not servicing that, that debt. So it was a huge risk, but that was the trade-off that we, that we made with making that decision with, is this, what's the right financial fit for us? And, I, and that, that for me, I think um, is a really great question for scaling entrepreneurs because there's not one type of capital, there's not one type of investor. Um, there are lots of different options. And understanding, you know, getting options to the table is what investment bankers are supposed to do for you. Um, and, and that really helped us with then being able to make choices uh, around what could work. And do we like these people? Do we want to be um, in bed with these people? Are we going to go on a journey together? And this is, is this a good fit? And you often don't know um, when, you, when you make some of these choices. But um, you know, deciding what kind of deal was was right for us was was really part of our, our our growth story. Absolutely. So let's skip ahead in the story to when you're deciding to sell. As you said earlier, this wasn't a company that you were building to sell, and it wasn't necessarily something that you had planned for. But here we are, and you're at that point in this in this story. Tell me a little bit about that. What what kind of led up to it, and did you pursue the sale or did companies come knocking on your door or investment firms come knocking on your door? Yeah. Yeah. We or your didn't, tent door. <laughs> didn't my tent door. Yeah. We didn't pursue a sale, but we did get really clear about what we wanted in our next stage of our journey. And so um, we went out to, after sort of that first round of capital, I did my job as CEO. We deployed all that capital really quickly in one year um, and we got really great ROI on it. And we managed to increase the valuation of our company almost tenfold. I mean, it was extraordinary. And um, we went out, we needed more capital to keep growing the business. We, we were excited by what we'd already done and thought if we can just put more money to work now, let's, let's go again. Um, and I think because of how much more valuable the company had become in that sort of 18 month timeline, um, the offers were completely different than I was imagining they would be. Um, and so 
we didn't we didn't go out to sell um didn't I, I wasn't planning on exiting the company i was still planning on continuing to grow and scale and do extraordinary things with this company that we had built um, but we did get really clear about what we wanted going forward in this next phase because it was like every time you raise capital it's like a new you hit a new level and you get clear on all right what does this next piece of the journey look like um and so we chose a private equity company um ultimately who were experts in hospitality because we felt like if um we are eventually going to transition out of the business um and we certainly weren't planning on transitioning out of the business but that um we want experts who know how to take this business to the next next level um and do what we don't know how to do um uh, and so that was ultimately why we chose who we chose it was a really good fit from the industry standpoint the know-how and what they brought to the table what did that mean for you what was the ask of you and your husband did they want you to stay on did they want you to leave yeah that was the really hard part for me um and i i didn't understand at the time <laughs> um and I certainly do now, but at the time it didn't make any sense to me because I had a very strong vision and desire to continue growing the company and a very clear idea about how I was going to do that. Um, but it was not, we did not have the same vision around how that was going to unfold. Um, and, you know, who knows who was right? I mean, ultimately, the company has continued to grow and perform and do exceptionally well. And certainly a lot of the things that have happened um, in the last 18 months probably would not have happened uh, if I was still leading the company. So, um, and good things. So, um, yeah, but it was it was heartbreaking, honestly, just devastating that I was not going to get to continue to stay and lead this company. Uh, I led through a transition, um, but it was probably the worst moment of my life. <laughs> so, it was part of you. Yeah, absolutely. It's like giving birth to a child and this, you know, we, we'd been with this grownness company from, you know, nothing to, you know, zero to hero and been on a very, and I wasn't ready for that journey to end. Um, and so it was a very painful era, which, you know, people often say, oh, you made a lot of money. And I say, well, A, you don't know how much money I took out of the company because you don't know how much of the company was left and was mine. So you don't know what that looks like. And also is I, it was, a, it was something that I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily ready for at that particular moment. So it was a shock yeah. um, and a grief um, with transitioning out away from the day-to-day -day of a company that I loved, was super passionate about, and still felt like there was a very big journey to still go on. So it was a shock. It was a shock. It was a shock. And you didn't have a choice. You know, it was part of the deal, right? You had to accept it. So you said a year, you were with a company a year in that transition or how long? I, I did a year um, post um, losing the majority control of my company. Yeah. Right. Were you involved in hiring the new CEO? I was not. Okay. No. That must have been hard too, because you knew that was happening on the side. 
Yeah, it was probably better for me, actually, that I wasn't because I still wanted it to be me. So <laughs> you wouldn't have liked any of the candidates. No, to everyone. I know, exactly. <laughs> so it probably was healthier that I was not part of that process because, yeah, my head was not in a in a great space about it. So, yeah, um, yeah, it was it was it was emotionally it was emotionally wrenching. Um, and I think that's all I can say about it. I mean, it was just it was an extraordinary thing that I I didn't understand that private equity companies have a way of doing something when they acquire a company. And I think a lot of us don't understand the way investment works. Um, and that's why I think conversations like this are super helpful, because the more we can understand how this works, the more power it gives us to understand and make good choices and make choices that and ask questions. Um, so I, I, I think that's, um, that's the reason for talking about it. For, yeah, for one, it's helpful um, for many people. This is their one chance, right? You're, you're going to sell yeah. You're going to build your company and sell your company once in your life, most likely. Yeah. Yeah. So you've never been through it. You know, it's that catch 22 where how do you know how to do something? You've never done it before. And a lot of times we try to listen and learn from others. And that's why I do this show. And I really appreciate you coming on. And I appreciate you being authentic about it, that if people read about you, they're going to see you sold your company for a hundred million dollars. They're going to think, oh my God, she, you know, she pocketed yeah. all this money. She's got to be so happy about it. And then so often, and you're not alone, Sarah, that there's lots of data out there that show that it is, it is emotionally difficult mm -hmm. after you leave your yeah. business and you're sharing something very personal and and I appreciate that. It is it is difficult, I'm sure, to think about and put yourself back in that place. So help us understand, how did you get out of that dark place? How did you say, you know what, I accept it now and I'm able to move forward and maybe talk about your role as you fashioned it, as the new, mm -hmm. you know, the identity shift has happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Accepting the identity shift has taken some time. But in those days, you know, how did you come out of it on the other side? Yeah, well, I, I guess firstly, I would say I grieved. I grieved a real loss I, I, of people I had been at work with every single day for, you know, many, many years. I grieved not being in the day to day of my business. Um, and I didn't necessarily do my grieving quietly. So it was it was painful for my family and everyone around me. Um, but what I have I have since learned about myself um, and I think all of us experience transitions all the time um, when one thing ends and a new thing begins and a transition is the space in between them. Um, this idea of transitioning um, is really part of our own growth and our own becoming, you know, our constant becoming more of who we are able and meant to be. Um, and I, I learned about myself that I am not very good at letting go. I'm not very good when I love something and I'm, I'm an all in my heart's all in kind of person. And I'm, when I'm in, I'm in. And so transitioning from one thing into a new thing was, was particularly hard for me, which required extensive grieving. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of the things that really helped with that was a really strong sense of, um, I definitely grieved the loss of being a CEO and my understanding of myself in that role. But I realized I had so much more power, um, not only just to affect my own company, 
but to lever everything that I had learned to affect many companies um, was one of the things that really helped my, my own shift and my own transition into thinking about how do I take the journey that I've been on because it's really been quite an extraordinary journey and how do I use that for the good of other women? Because one of the things I realized was when I was meeting investors, I barely met anyone who looked like me and, um, and people, I, I just, I knew that it, there was something wrong with the system that says, you know, 2% of women are getting venture capital funding today to build and scale their businesses. I am an unusual phenomenon, but I am a woman who has managed to scale and grow a business from nothing and sell it for over a hundred million dollars. There are not that many of me in the world. There is something wrong with that, right? Why should that be the case? And it made me realize that, um, well, um, women like me then have to get into the arena and start backing other women to go on that journey and um, it made me realize I can, I can assist and journey with other women and, and put a hand behind me and help other women climb that ladder too. Because I genuinely actually really strongly believe that if women had equal access to getting their shot at building great companies, and by that, I mean, they had equal access to capital and resources and knowledge and power, um, that our world would look completely different that the companies that would get built would um, change the world we live in really quite dramatically. That, you know, we we have, for the large part, um, most companies being built by male founders and white American male founders. And, and that means those companies dominate our world in a particular way. Um, and moves our world forward in a particular way. And I, I just really strongly believe that women have, um, if we get to participate in this world of building, um, we'll build a better world for all of us to live in more equally, more sustainably, uh, more impactfully, um, and that we can drive a lot of change and, and do a lot of good. So long answer to a short question. But, no, it's an um, important answer. Yeah. They're very important because that became your new vision, right? For creating yes. Enigma Ventures and starting a venture capital firm with this mission and with this purpose. And at what point did you and your family move to South Africa? How did you decide to focus on that community for your investing? Yeah. So when we looked at this, we had this crazy idea of could we could we lever ourselves now for the good of women? Um, and could we invest the capital that's been bestowed upon us um, for the good of other women? And when we looked at, you know, we were, we were, our own family was ready for our own new adventure. Um, and when we looked at where we felt like we could make the most impact, you know, we're big ROI people. And so how could we lever our own capital, our own resources and time and energy and potentially get the most return? Um, was thinking about, okay, let us look at um, emerging markets and let, you know, Africa is woefully underfunded. So last year alone, when the US deployed $134 billion of capital, um, Africa managed to deploy $4 billion. So we're on a magnitude of, you know, 
of a, of a, I don't know, know what that ratio is, but it's massive. Um, 4%. How do we, how do we deploy more capital into the region and how do we help and train and empower women uh, to really transform a continent that's really, really lagging behind um, in its development? And so here we are investing wow. in amazing female entrepreneurs who have incredible vision um, to transform their communities and their cities and their nations and build extraordinary businesses that, that really move the needle. That's exciting. When you meet with Investa, you meet with potential entrepreneurs that you're going to invest in. What are you looking for, given all your experience and raising money and dealing on the other side of the table now, right? You're on the other side of the yeah. table in these deals. What have you said yes to and what types of things have you passed on? Tenacity probably is the biggest thing we look for because um, you really got to want this. Doing, driving and building big businesses is hard work and you've got to be really all in. Um, so can we, can we figure out if you are all in or not? Um, do we think you've got what it takes to really do this? And, and I know how hard as a mother of young children it was to grow and scale a really big business. Um, can I see it in your eyes that you've got some fire in your belly? Um, and are you tackling a problem that's got a big enough market? So a bit like when I was, you know, our first early mistake was we we had a great product, but it was in a market that nobody really wanted to go to, is are you trying to service a large enough target audience? Could your, could your business, you know, uh, be one day worth a billion dollars? Is, is this a large enough opportunity? Um, and do we think, you know, aside from those two big things, do we think we are the right people um, to have any kind of impact and assist you on your journey? And there are definitely some businesses that I have thought you definitely could be something and you could be amazing, but maybe I'm not the right, the right one to help you. Um, so yeah, probably a combination of those three big things really, is this a right fit for us? Um, are you tackling something really huge that could be really ginormous? Um, and have you got it in your belly um, to go after it and get it done? That's really awesome. If someone's contacting you from the US, you would say, we're sorry, we're focused on Africa. Yeah, I, I'm looking at a couple of businesses actually uh, right now, though, of African female African entrepreneurs who are, are in the States building building businesses and we're looking at those too okay. i just would love those businesses to have some effect on the continent so it can't be that we're building a building something that doesn't affect africa in the slightest um so but yeah i've okay. i've got several u.s based entities um by african founders so back to the founder discussion if we have founders or owners of companies listening to the show and they're thinking about maybe selling their business one day, what would be mm -hmm. one thing that you would leave them with? If they're gonna take action on one thing or something to really consider as they, in the future, consider selling their company. Get really clear on what you want. Um, asking yourself, what do I really want? Um, was really helpful for giving me clarity because um, if you know, I want to really sell my business for $100 million. You can figure out, all right, how do I get that done? 
how do I work backwards from that decision and figure out how far away is that? What would I have to do? What would my business have to look like? And you can work on it, right? Um, so it's just like, you know, there's a, as an amazing ancient proverb that says, without vision, the people perish. And I was like, this idea of, can I get really clear on what my vision is and what I'm, what I'm trying to do and why? Um, and for me, for me, selling our business was never really about um, making huge amounts of money. It was about how can I lever myself to make the most impact? And so the number was a part of that, right? Because of what I was thinking about what we might do next. So it was not irrelevant. It was definitely irrelevant. But getting clear on what matters to you and why it matters to you, that's that's the other part I think about what matters. It's like, ask yourself, why? Why does that matter? What am I really trying to do? And why am I trying to do it? Because that can either then super motivate you to make it happen and get it done or not. <laughs> and you can decide, I don't actually want to sell my business or I want this business to be a family business and I want my grandchildren to inherit it. And therefore, it's got to, we've got to do X, Y, and Z to make that happen. So, you know, getting clear on what you want and why, um, I think it's probably the most important thing when you own a business. That's an excellent message. I usually ask everyone if they have a favorite saying about entrepreneurship or leadership. You just shared one. So I don't know if this one is your favorite. <laughs> if you have a different one about having the, the vision without the vision, people perish. Are there any others that come to mind for you? That's definitely one of my, my favorite thoughts. Um, yeah, let's stick with that one. Because okay. I was on that's a great example. Well, we've talked about so much today, Sarah, and if people want to connect with you after the show, what's a great way for them to find you? Absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn, Sarah Dusik, um, or through our website, Enigma Ventures. And Enigma is with a Y, E-N-Y-G-M-A, enigmaventures.com. Well, and thank you so much for joining me today on Succession Story, Sarah. Listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. You can always catch us on your favorite podcast players or on YouTube. Don't forget to like, subscribe to the show. And if you want to maximize the value of your business and plan for a future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. And tune in next week for more insights from transition to transaction. Until then, here's to your success. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com. Dot com.